Hello and welcome to the Peach Black Podcast, which is all about the game of entrepreneurship. If the peach represents the highlight reel that we all tell on a daily basis as entrepreneurs, the Instagram to our reality, the black represents the stories and lessons of this game that are usually left in the dark. I am your host, Charlie Regis. I'm the co-founder and global business development director of the digital product studio, Style of Tech. And today we are joined by one of the most exciting founders in Europe, Dimitri Faber. He's the co-founder of Tiller, which is the biggest iPad point of sale system in Europe. They service everything from restaurants to retail. They are big time they have successfully raised Series B funding, have over 170 employees, and have expanded aggressively into Spain, France, and Italy. For those of you who don't know Tilla, their core innovation has been that they've created their own app market, much like Apple, where the likes of Deliveroo integrate into their platform to create an all-star, all-in-one solution. On this episode, we discuss how to pick the right investors, not just for your business, but for your existing portfolio of investors. We talk about how his role as a co-founder has evolved as the company has scaled, and we discuss how a sales culture has been a key factor in their growth. Dimitri Faber, thank you so much for joining us on Peach Black, my friend. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, So many people know you as the co-founder of Tiller. And before we dive into all things Tiller Systems, I'd love to get a little bit of an idea of where this whole thing started for you. Not necessarily just the Tiller journey, but the process of thinking like an entrepreneur. Now, what were your earliest thoughts around that? Um, Complicated question. Um, I want to say, and I always believe that there's always part that comes from the family, right? Yeah, uh, my dad was a, is a real estate promoter, so always in the entrepreneurial business. Uh, my cousin also started several companies. We always had that entrepreneurship mind in the in the family and friends around it. And and the funny story about Tiller is it started as a family business as well because on the, the way the early founders. So we were three of us: ones that are here, one that's that then that left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was my cousin, so we started kind of a family business at the start to try to build something together. And, and, you know, I think that the whole idea and the whole starts comes also from, you know, there are people you like and you feel you can work with and you just sit down and try to find something, something fun and cool to do. How was it balancing that family relationship? I know for a lot of people getting into business with really close friends or family members or uh, their other half, you know, it's a very complicated relationship to manage. You know, how have you found it's most effective to manage these relationships? It's, it's another good point. And I think, you know, the studies that show that the main reason why startups or company fails are because of problems between the founders or the historical founders and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we found a good balance in the fact that we were so three founders historically, uh, Scott, Joseph and I, Scott is my cousin. So, and then he had me as a cousin, very close. And then he had Joseph, which I didn't know at the time, which was one of his best friends from university. So mm-hmm. it kind of brought a dynamic where, you know, we know each other well, but all of us are not best friends in childhood or family members. So, and, and you know, I think, of course, uh, Scott, after some, some time in the company, had to leave for another really, really exciting opportunity and now starting a new venture. 
and it brought Joseph and I at the beginning, which, you know, we didn't know each other. So it was very weird at the beginning, but we still yeah. had something in common. So, you know, we, we were lucky enough. And I think it's the good balance of saying, of course, he's one of my best friends today, but it's, it's a balance where you know the person enough to trust them, like mm-hmm. first family, but you don't know them too well where you spend all your weekends, all your vacations together. So I think it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's a delicate balance, but all the companies that are in this mode, where it's like there's someone in the middle that introduced two close people. I think it's something that works pretty well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that's a very similar dynamic to uh, our setup here at, at Stylif Tech, where one of my best friends was the co-founder of Stylif and introduced me to the company. Um, and I didn't know the founder at all, you know, so I've had almost two types of relationship where you build a professional first relationship with the founder that then grows into a friendship and something beautiful. Of course. And yeah. your relationship with your best mate or in your case, your cousin that starts off very friend based, then transitions into something more professional and just looks yeah. totally different. You know, you treasure it for different reasons. Um, and I think, you know, if you're going into any sort of founding relationship, you just got to be open to the relationship changing for good and for worse. You know, it's going to change for good reasons. And there's other bits of the relationship that will, yeah. that will change. And I think you just got to go into that with, with sure. 2020 vision. Um, so you said you have a big family support, big family inspiration just around the entrepreneurial mindset. Where did your role in Tiller really, really start to kick off? Um, so, uh, you know, at the beginning, there's always this, these first six to 12 months where in our case, we're still university students. Mm-hmm. So we're still in our last year of studies. You know, my two fo- co-founders were still working part-time. I was doing my master's thesis. So we're all kind of working. And there's that whole six, eight first months where you say, is this going to last? Should I look for a job? Should I do something else? Should I start? So, you know, I, I, I found some of my old emails the other day where, it's, I was just applying for another job and saying, yeah, I built this company. It's great, but I'm not sure and stuff. And, and at some point you just realize, okay, now we, we have to go. And I think for us, it was also the time where we hired our first employee. Mm-hmm. And, and then you just sit down and say, okay, now like I have a job. It's not just something I'm doing on weekends or just when I'm hanging around. Now like I just have to go to the freaking office every, every day. And, and I have to be there because there's someone waiting at the door. And I think that's the, the real change of mindset. Now you've got mouths to feed. Exactly. I think, uh, and the, the, the stresses change, right? So for me anyway, I can only talk from our experience, but when you're first setting something up, you know, you're full of dreams, you're full of ambition and you know, you're making the sacrifice around your lifestyle for the bigger vision. Um, as soon as you start to bring multiple people on, the stress yeah. almost changed for me a little bit anyway, where it goes from, you know, I'm motivated to generate revenue so that my lifestyle changes and it changes yeah. to, okay, now I have families to feed, I yeah. can't fail, you know, and it's a different kind of pressure that, that drives you and, and keeps you up at night and something you just got to get used to, you know, just yeah. a, a new part of the game. Um, so I'm keen to get an understanding of what the first version of Tiller looked like. You know, a lot of these MVPs are rustic. A lot of them don't work. You've got to have a little pivot. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know what this first version looked like and, and its level of success. Uh, you won't be surprised. <laughs> you won't be disappointed. It's, so we, we, we had a particularly, I've started in companies like many today with business co-founders. So mm-hmm. once Scott left, there were Joseph and I left. We didn't have a background in engineering and development and tech, even in product. So, you know, we, we, we started to look for a co-founder. And 
And before we found a co-founder, we still wanted to sell the product. You know, we, mm -hmm. we have this very American-ish uh, style of just, you know, going on the field and not being scared. And, and when we arrived, we arrived on a market where there were probably tens of other competitors with really cool products. So our real MVP of the product was a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> um, you know, the, these clickable keynote or PowerPoint presentations where you could just bring to the customer on the iPad and then he could just click just one sequence of numbers that would work and not just break everything. So yeah, <laughs> that, that's a little the, the joke MVP we talk about, which is really cool. And, you know, to make it work, it worked. 300 slides. It was insane. Yeah. Uh, and then we, we were lucky enough to have our technical co-founder, Vincent, join us. Um, at the time, after a little less than one year of activity. And, and he just started building the first MVP with, he had two interns and one full time. We started building, building the product. And, and you know, the, um, our, real, our first MVP, of course, it was crap. We can mm -hmm. say it, but Always. We're, we're still in a very B2B business. Yeah. And, and it has good and bad things. The good thing is um, a restaurant owner or a merchant has to have a till and has to have our solution. So basically, they have a need for our product. Now, the counterpart of that is it can't fail because it's, it's not like just a game or an app or something where, okay, if it fails, you can come back later and do it. This is really where we're used 100% of the time, 100% of the time a restaurant or a store is open. So we still had to build a product that was, even if it was very simple in terms of features, it needed to be 100% functional. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what guided also our product strategy is instead of saying, let's build something really complex, but really buggy, which is a strategy. Mm -hmm. It was more like, let's build just a very basic one that works and then just add up to it on the market. So with, with that understanding of we need to build something that can execute the most fundamental value proposition without failure, how did that impact your choice to bring the technical resource in-house compared to looking for uh, a dev shop or a studio yeah. to help you bring the first, first version to life? So it's a good question. Um, there isn't much science behind it. We, 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 had, we hadn't had a great experience with offshore mm -hmm. or offsite. And, and, you know, we're still a very tech company. Um, and tech is at the heart and the core of our team. So we brought in our co-founders and him since the beginning, he had this vision of building it uh, on site because, because, you know, he wanted to have full control on what's happening. It's, you know, we're working with sensible data. We're working with, we need to fix things in the second. So, so basically it was also his decision uh, aligned with us of saying, okay, let's just have a team, build a team. And at the time, you know, there was also the vision as, as first-time entrepreneurs, we want to build a company with as many people as possible, yeah. which is not always the case now, but, <laughs> you know, we just wanted to hire people. We didn't want freelancers. We didn't mm -hmm. want uh, offsite. So we really just wanted to hire people and hire mm -hmm. people full-time to, you know, build a company and build the values around it. So part of those values were also saying, okay, let's, as much as we can hire local resources, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. I love it. Um, you've touched on culture there and I get yeah. the impression, you know, you're very keen on getting in house, breeding this culture early. Um, it seems to me like you had a vision for what the culture should be and what you wanted it to be. Can you elaborate around the type of experience you're trying to create for your team? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, as entrepreneurs and it's my first venture, so now I've seen a, a few, I've invested in a few, so, mm. but 
but you know, the, the fundamental thing is build something that as a founder, you feel represented in. Mm-hmm. And for us, you know, when we were just the two or the three of us at the beginning, we just used to have fun. It wasn't like work. And, and we tried to hire people that were in that mindset. So of course, at the beginning, we hired people we knew indirectly, but yeah. then arrives a point where you hire someone that just applied on the website. And, yeah. and you know, there's kind of a game of, you have to convince the person to come because you know, you're mm-hmm. an early stage company, uh, almost no funding. There's a, an office with three people. So they have to convince, but you also have to make sure that the person fits a little what you want to build. And, and that really depends of the company. But for us, it was, you know, having fun, uh, having a little a pirate mindset. So being mm-hmm. able to you know, just go and break things and go fast. <laughs> and, and we didn't need to have the best product or the best thing. We just needed to, to, to have the best ambition and go. So, you know, we decided that and we tried to hire people that were like that. And maybe the 10, 15, 20 people we hired were in that mindset of having fun, of taking risks, of, and you know, our motto that, Actually, it's one of the employees at the time that defined it was go big or go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the 10, 20, 30, even the 100 first people we hired were in that mindset. We're really saying, okay, well, I'm not here to have a secure job and everything. I'm here to have fun, to try mm-hmm. things, to, to, to have a voice. So, I mean, I love that. And I think with a lot of founders, um, you kind of break through a barrier of being scared of failing. You know, I think once you start getting used to losing, start getting used to failing, whether it's a, a sales call, a sales meeting, whether it's a yeah. product environment or anything around this game of chess, I think you just get used to it and it just becomes a refining process. You know, mm-hmm. what were some of the earliest lessons that really started yeah. to shift the way that you approach the game? <laughs> so the, the first thing is, at the beginning and the, for the first years of activity, we were a very sales-focused company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a strong believer, and my co-founders too, that at some point, we're lucky enough that our customers are in the streets. We can directly go talk to them. So it's, not, it's worth going to talk to them. Yeah. And, and I think having that sales culture at the beginning, it's very strong because it's very sales-focused. But it also shows you that you just have to try and try and try and try again, right? And it's, it's the famous quote that, you already have a no and you have to try to go get the yes, right? Yeah. If you don't ask the question, it's like if you had a no. So we try to build that culture also in the mindset of the other teams. And as you know, a salesperson will pass a hundred calls an hour. Maybe we'll schedule one meeting or two meetings or three mm-hmm. if they're lucky. So, and if they're good, so that whole culture of, you know, failing and failing and failing and failing until we get somewhere is something we really wanted to push. And it's something, you know, we, we adapted over the time. Today, we're less in that kind of culture because we also have almost 9,000 customers. We have a bigger team. We have people that represent less the initial culture, which is normal. Mm-hmm. But still, for the first years and even today, we wanted to keep that vision of saying, yeah, just go try, fail, and then try again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, so from an investor's perspective, having a very sales heavy culture is something that is attractive to a lot of investors, you know, because, you know, yeah. sales greases the wheels. How did you find that that culture was impacting your ability to raise funds early? Um, so uh, I understand the point. Surprisingly enough, it didn't. Okay. Um, it, it was, I mean, we, we, we put that culture to our advantage, right? And we were able to show that being last on the market, because we were almost last on the market in France or in Southern mm-hmm. Europe, 
Um, and just bringing in a great sales team, great sales director, great processes, great tool, we could go much faster than other people that had been there for two, three, four, 10, 20, 30 years. So I, I think it's, we, we brought uh, innovation on the product side, for sure, but also on the process and the way of selling side. You know, we implemented um, offline, I mean, um, Visio sales. So we sell over the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, and over screen sharing. And why? Because we just explained the customers and the investors that it's just a question of cost. If we don't have to send the salespeople to wherever in the UK or in France or in Spain or Italy, it's going to reduce the cost. So it's going to reduce the cost for the customer and the acquisition cost. If, and then we also implemented what we call one-shot sales. And it's the same idea. It's telling the customer that if they sign at the first meeting, it's going to bring down the cost for them because nice. it's going to bring down the cost for us. And for I've never heard that before. That's are. really cool. So all that innovation in terms of processes and sales, more than product at the beginning of the company, that's something that, that really impacted the investors. And the first investors that trusted us, 360 Capital, they invested in that. They invested in the vision, but they invested in the operations team. That's, that's really interesting. And I think understanding what gets the early nibbles for founders is, is one of the most important things so that you can frame your own proposition in a way that understands, you know, what's an attractive in the investment market. Um, as you've said, you've grown the team to 170 plus people, which is a huge rate of growth in a relatively short amount of time as a founder or a co-founder, your skill set and your role changes dramatically when you go from yeah. A to B. Right. What do you feel has been your biggest learning curve, your biggest change to your role, to your skill set, having gone through that scaling process? Uh, I, I couldn't see you all the, the changes and things I've learned and, and all the different things. Um, what's, what's I think impactful is just being able to tell each ourselves as founders that our role is going to evolve. And that were there at the beginning to fill the blanks. So, you know, they, they talk about the evolution of the founders. At the beginning, you do everything yourself. Then you just split in managing the teams that have no manager. And then you will take or a managing role, total global, or innovation roles. And, and you know, we evolved like that also. At the beginning, if I take my example, um, I was in charge of uh, product for some point, for some reason, because <laughs> I, it's not my expertise, but you learn, right? So you take one month and I think, the biggest quality of a founder is learning a new role, at least the basics of a new role, understanding it, and then hiring the good person to do it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the vision. Then I stepped in for sales uh, for a while, for a year. So same, I had to learn. You know, I did business school. Business school doesn't teach you to sell. It's yeah. not a brand. So I had to learn everything. I had to be on the field with the sales and, and you learn. And then you have the legitimacy to hire a person on that role. And then do you have the respect of the teams? So we hired the salespeople. Then I went into uh, marketing and I worked on marketing, put there all the processes. Then we hired a marketing person. Then I went into acquisition, so lead generation. So I put that in <laughs> place, I learned, and then we hired. And every time I tried to hire someone, uh, I did, that are much better than me, that are yeah. more expert on that. And now, for example, I moved to more a business development role. Mm -hmm. and, and I think at each step of the way, the biggest learning we can have as founders is understanding the teams, understanding how a team works, uh, earning the respect also from the team. You know, they say, okay, well, he's done it or she's done it. Mm -hmm. And then just 
having the, I would say, non-ego or maturity or whatever of saying, okay, let's hire someone that's better and more expert now that I have the basics. Yeah, and I guess understanding the basics is a huge factor in what enables you to evaluate the, the next person that you're trying to bring in. You know, if you're a complete novice, then it's very hard for you to evaluate candidates, you know? Yeah. So when you are looking for candidates to bring in, um, I think particularly in the early doors as a startup, whether it's a sales role or a biz dev role, you're kind of faced with, with two choices, right? You either go for somebody who's relatively affordable, relatively inexperienced, um, but you're hoping will grow with the business, or you go for somebody no. with the black book, with the experience behind them who no. you're making a huge gamble on, but you're hoping is going to take you to the next level. Which way did you guys go and why? <sighs> So it depends on if you ask me the question today about today and the question about what we did three, four, five years ago. Um, at the beginning of the company, we hired uh, young people uh, like us that had talent, that had grit, that just wanted to, to, to own the world, eat the world, whatever. So we hired them by saying the same idea, having the idea behind that they will grow into our culture we will show them the way we want to work and learn from them also as well. And then part of them will be able to step up to top management levels. Mm -hmm. So that was the vision. Um, and now once we passed a little that, that phase, so to give you an idea, during the three first years of Tiller, the average age of people we had was 26, I think. Okay. It was more, more or less our age uh, as founders. And, and now today, the, I think it's a little over 30. So, and it, which is our age also mm -hmm. as well. So I think the maturity of the company and the people we hire also goes with us. And, and basically the, the, the drawing I like to do is saying, okay, well, you have people that start at the beginning that will follow the course and will gain more experience and maturity. And at some point you'll have to ask yourself the question, is this person that has been with me since the beginning um, good enough for the role and for the position mm -hmm. or do I need to hire someone external? And, and it depends. Some people are, are very happy in an early stage startup, very doing everything. Some people are not. Some people are different. So, you know, today I would say it's probably a balance of 40% uh, people that were there since the beginning and 60, 70% of new people we brought in. And at, every time we tried to bring in a person, we didn't want someone, as you said, with the black book, with all the customers, with everything, because it's very hard to integrate into a culture. It's very hard to keep someone motivated. We want. So we hire intermediaries. So people with strong experience, mm -hmm. strong background, but you know, or with an entrepreneurial spirit that have already started their company or that have worked at other startups. So an age doesn't really matter. It's more the experience in that. Okay. Okay. Really interesting. I think it's, it's uh, always an interesting one where you go for entrepreneurs that have had a venture, tried it, failed it, and then bring them in. You know, yeah. I feel like that's a different kind of asset than bringing someone from a corporate world into a first startup. Game. Yeah. You know, both have benefits. We, yeah. Yeah, we, no, we have it. both. Yeah, we have both to be honest. So basically if you take our management team, we have people that, you know, like us learned since the beginning and just went up the, the ladder and now have the experience and maturity and on ego to, to manage a team at the same level. We have younger people, but that we took from other ventures, from other startups, and we have some people from the corporate world. And I think it's the balance of all of that. As soon as, as long as you have a common culture and a common vision of what you want to do, 
I think if you have, a, it's not good having 100% of one or 100% of the other, but if you have a good mix, it works out. Very cool. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to dip back oh, into product. Um, you mentioned that you're innovating in the experience of point of sale systems. Yeah. Uh, I'm presuming one of the biggest innovations is the app market that you guys yeah. have created. I would love to get an understanding of bringing that to life um, and the impact that it's made for your customers. Yeah. Um, I mean, w when we built the product, we, it was very clear we didn't want to just build a cash register, right? Mm. It's not very exciting. It's, you can innovate it, iPad-based with many, many things that our team brings, but you can't reinvent it completely. So we, we, we knew very soon that we wanted to add other parts and that the register was just the, the cornerstone of mm -hmm. the emerge, emerged parts. So we added two parts. One was a real-time management platform, which is our back office where you know, a restaurant owner can access all his or her data in real time from a distance, uh, have precise analytics, know what's working, what products aren't, what waiter are productive, which are. And so really try to push the analytics. So that's our real added mm -hmm. value behind. Yeah. And the second thing, as you, as, as you said, is we noticed that on the market, there were more and more, and there are hundreds and thousands today, of digital solutions for restaurant owners. So, you know, you can take the simple ones, the delivery providers, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, Glovo, um, mm -hmm. whatever. You have reservations, you have loyalty, you have mobile payments, you have payments, you have uh, hundreds of categories, HR management, recruitment, everything. And, and basically what we said is we're not experts in each one of the fields. That we're experts in building an ecosystem, in consolidating products and data and analyzing data. So... The idea we had was, you know, like Apple does at another level or like Salesforce does yeah. or is just, you know, building an ecosystem of apps that are directly integrated. So our only focus was on customer experience. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, I have an iPhone here I, and it's, it's the same. It's just saying, okay, they have Tiller as a central nerve system of the restaurant and they can just plug in every system and it will make it much easier than if it was separate. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've integrated over 60, 60 apps. Um, wow. and, and it's something that I think it's our, our greatest added value today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How was that able to change the conversation during the sales uh, process? Was it something that you lead really heavy with or is it something that comes in a little, a little later down the line? So, I would have liked it to be the, the main point of focus. However, if you take the market today, um, or at least in the last couple of years, people look for a cash register. Yeah. Right. They need it. It's, le it's a legal requirement. So they're mm -hmm. looking for that. So our entry point is that. Now the app market and the back office are what make them make the customers choose us instead mm -hmm. of someone else. Yeah. And you know, we're, the whole conversation is about, the iPad point of sale, it's cool, it's simple, it's intuitive, it's cheap, but it's not the added value. It's not that different. The real added value comes here and here, mm -hmm. and that's how it works. However, more and more, we're trying to shift the focus and, and you know, consider ourselves a platform or an ecosystem more than just the point of sale. But you know, if I'm totally transparent, it's going to take some time. Sure. I think that's really interesting around differentiating the real star value proposition yeah. and the, the proposition you put on the table to open the door to a conversation. Yeah. You know, I think so many founders have quite sophisticated propositions that make 
may take five minutes to really understand if you're yeah. coming at this cold. And I think understanding what your customers are in the market looking for, whether it's a fitness app or whatever it, yeah. whatever it is, and just giving them a little bit of a glimpse into what they're, they're trying to find there and then show them the world that you're trying to create yeah. is, is valuable for a lot of founders, you know, because it's a lot of information to digest early doors. Um, I'm going to dip into the later rounds of investment and the shift in lifestyle from being a very free founder who's maybe had some angel investment through to, you know, serious VC backing and how you're yeah. trying to manage that relationship. Um, I'm keen to understand what it was like to have someone to answer to in many senses yeah. and what's been the key to nurturing that relationship for follow on investment. So in terms of investors, of course, at the beginning, we were very lucky to, to, to have angel investors that gave us a lot of freedom. We could do away. Once a corporate investor, a VC comes in, they're going to start structuring, of course, the whole thing. They're going to change the way we look at our numbers. They're going to ask us for accounts. They're going to ask us to hire people to structure. So, you know, we were lucky enough to, to, to have that in a way that it didn't impact our agility that much because it was very key, but it helped us implement basic processes and it's processes such as just you know a little deeper accounting following of cash flows everything and you know they pushed for example for the recruiting of the cfo and i think it was one of the best moves we've ever made mm -hmm. of elam joining the team because she could bring her expertise and her experience in dealing with investors because she she used to um but also in structuring the whole internal thing and and i think the the, the real balance you have to find is for expectations. If you have all your investors that are aligned on an IPO, an exit, profitability, whatever we want behind, it's much easier to look at the same indicators, look at the same KPIs, look at the same operational actions and investment. The problem comes if you have, and we're lucky enough to not have it, an investor that wants an exit in two years and an investor that wants a profitability. So then you really have a problem because each one is going to be pushing for something completely different and most of the time completely opposite. And I think that's where most of the tensions appear. So when you're raising funds or when you're looking for new investors, I think, of course, you have all the conditions and the valuation and the everything behind you you have to look at. But I think the most important thing is the vision of the investor. And look if it's aligned with the vision of other investors, but also with your own vision as a founder. I think that's the key, key thing that makes companies at, at our skill level fail. How much research do you do on your prospecting investors? Obviously you look at the companies they've invested in before, but do you contact the founders of those companies and get an, an idea of what it's like as a, to have them as part of the team, as part of the, the investor package? What, what, what's your due diligence like on the investor scene? Um, so it's not very easy because there's a shift of power if you want where Right now in the VC world, it's maybe going to change with the corona crisis, but uh, VCs have more power than startups in general, right? Yeah. So uh, at least negotiate bargaining power. So I think there are two important things. One is being able to put yourself back at that level. And put yourself back at the level is meaning that it's not only them that choose you, but it's you that chooses them. So mm -hmm. even just that impact of saying, okay, we have several proposals on the table and now we're going to do the due diligence on you. That's something that just naturally puts you at the level mm -hmm. and shows the impact. The easiest way to do it is looking at their future uh, past investments and talking to companies they invested in. 
you know, uh, it's as much as a wedding as with your founders. <laughs> uh, you're going to give this fund or these investors part of your company, part of your equity. So it's, it's, it's key that, you know, you, you test the relationship if needed. You have like this, you know, you propose to the fund and then you have a year of testing or you make sure that all the conditions are very clear and that everyone is aligned. Mm-hmm. I think that's some, some really, really valuable advice. Um, so Tilla is a global company right now. You are in Italy, France, and Spain. Uh, you've done this very quickly, and I want to get an understanding of how you've approached these international markets and what early learnings has enabled you to become successful in so many markets. Okay, successful, I don't know yet, but yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting, an interesting approach we have, and it was completely different for France and for Spain and Italy. Mm. Um, we always knew we wanted that European DNA, right, to be a European okay. company. Uh, I come from Spain originally, so it wasn't very easy, mm-hmm. hard to choose the first country. But I think what we did was important is we did it on a very objective way. So when we did our round of funding, we knew part of it was for international expansion. So we just looked, we said, what is the best country to go to? And we looked at, we have like a hundred criteria we looked at. We looked at basically every country in the world. Mm-hmm. And it was GDP, it was number of restaurants, it was, is there a regulation? What's the competition? What's the average investment per habitant in restaurants? What's the current technology? What's the ease of doing business in the country? What's the mm-hmm. language? So we looked at hundreds of criteria. We took some that were more important. And basically, it gave us a list. And on that list, we said, okay, which ones are the easiest and less risky ones to go in a sort of mm-hmm. way? Um, because, of course, as a French company, it's probably, of course, it can change, easier to open the Spanish market than to open Brazil or to open yeah. Colombia or to open Peru. So um, we decided as a first country to open Spain. Why? Because we wanted to have this geographical stronghold of saying, okay, we'll, we'll be strong in France, Spain, Italy. It was always our vision of mm-hmm. consolidating that. And, and what we, the lessons we learned on that is, one, it's all about the team and all about culture. It's, again, yeah. the same. So basically what we said is we need local teams. I'm a very, very strong believer that we need local people in the local countries mm-hmm. uh, to sell to local people. So, and then we need the, these people to replicate our culture as much as possible and adapt it locally. So we did something, for example, when we hired our country manager, Luis, uh, for Spain, um, we had him come to Paris for four months. He prepared the launch of the country. So, you know, that, that figure of a country manager when you launch a country is really key, not only to operationally be there when it's open, but also to prepare everything. So, you know, we, we killed two birds one from, with one stone is having him in Paris. He prepared everything with us. So we prepared the launch together, but also, so he, we hired together the team and everything, but he also impregnated from our culture, our values and the way we worked. Mm-hmm. Then when he went back to Barcelona, he had that. So he adapted it to his sauce, but we knew the culture and the fit was there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is a, it is a cultural thing, you know, um, for us, when we've done some of our global expansion, it's always been about trying to find the first bulbs, you know, the first people that you're going to build the relationship with, that you're going to trust with, um, approaching the market with your brand and everything else behind you. And I think it's a very special relationship that you have with, with that first person in, in that country. You know, it's, it's almost like, sharing a piece of your baby and then watching it grow. And it's, it's something that 
um, it's exciting. It's fun. You know, if yeah. you get it right, that's <laughs> a big and It's another wedding or it's yeah. a kid. Like you said, it's, it's the same. It's, you know, you're, and, and there's a reason we don't do it, but many companies do it. And, you know, calling these, the people you hire in the countries, they call them co-founders as well of the country. Interesting. Because okay. it's, it's, it's a founding role. So yeah. your, your role is not operational. It's not, it's, it's cultural and it's yeah. values of the company. Mm -hmm. It's, you need another chess player. You know, you need someone who sees the game of chess rather than just exactly. the, yeah. the lines of their, of their role. Absolutely. Um, so we are coming towards the end of this. This has been a lot of fun. We always end with a few quick fire questions. Sure. Um, so there's going to be three. The first one is what is your end game? Do you have an end game? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, so the end game, it has changed a lot during the time since the beginning. When we started, it was just building something fun and where we could, you know, enjoy and work. Then it's been hiring people. Then it's been invest, uh, fund, raising a, a new round of funding and everything. Mm -hmm. Today, I think uh, with everything that's happening, our common vision, so with our team, with our investors, is we want to build a profitable company. Yeah, that's our, that's our end game. I know it's something we don't hear a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more about I want to exit at uh, 100 plus million or I want to do an yeah. IPO. But for us, it's not the case. I think the real value today, and we've seen it with WeWorks or with Uber, mm -hmm. or, is that we want to build a profitable company with the team we have, keep growing, have ambitious growth, keep expanding to new countries, uh, and, you know, really bring a difference. And being profitable for us is the key, the key element for that. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Let's discuss London when you're ready. That's exciting stuff. I will. I will. <laughs> um, what is your, your favorite moments about this game? Right? I think all founders get kicks out of different little moments, right? Whether it's, you know, the seed of inspiration for an idea or closing a big deal. Founders have, have different things that, that are the purest yeah. moments of joy. What are your purest moments of joy? Um, so I have several, of course, um, day to day, you know, it's a roller coaster, right? Mm -hmm. So as soon as there's a really good news, it can be a fundraising, it can be a big contract, it can be, it can be anything. It's yeah. really impacting. I think there, there are two key moments that, that really, that really make us happy, or at least me. Uh, one is when someone leaves and they build their company, yeah, right? Nice. When someone, and we, and we have several, and even co-founder, my so Scott, the first co-founder left and, and built this really cool online bank, uh, banking platform. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, when someone leaves and says, yeah, I was inspired. I want to do like you guys. I want to build my company and stuff. I mean, we'll be there. We'll invest if we need to. We'll, it, it's really cool. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, you know, we, we give um, uh, stock options to some mm -hmm. of our key employees. And, and basically, some people had been in the company for four, even five years. And so when they leave the company, we ask them, if they want to activate them or not. And when yeah. they do, they have to pay. They have to buy the, the stocks to become shareholders of the company. And basically when someone, even someone that's leaving the company, because, you know, after three, four, five years, you want to try something new, you want mm -hmm. to do, and they still take a loan or they still bring their own money to invest in the company they're yeah. leaving. Yeah. I think that's one of the strongest uh, moments and momentums you can have. Mm -hmm. Of like someone saying, okay, you're leaving the company but you believe in it so much and what you've left in the company that you're willing to invest your own money in. Mm -hmm. I willing think that's, take that gamble. Really, that's a really, really cool yeah. for me personally. It's maybe different for everyone, but for me, it's really impactful. No, that's really special. That's cool. Um, so the last one, what has been the funniest moment of your career? Is there something that stands out? 
funniest? Um, <laughs> I should have prepared that one. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, funny, I, I don't have one like that. I mean, we, we've done crazy things, Taylor, mm-hmm. especially in the, in the early days, right? And, and going out to um, team buildings in, in Morocco and Montenegro with crazy things that I can't, I can't tell here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, retrospectively, and it wasn't a funny moment at the time, but now I'm happy it happened, was when our CFO arrived. And, you know, we had raised, raised money a couple months before or a year before. Mm-hmm. And she, she came and just during the first weeks, she just crunched numbers. Yeah. We, we just had, you know. It was it was four years ago, not anymore. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The money like crazy, and and you know she took it with Joseph and I and father. She said, "Guys, you you had planned for one more year of cash. This is not going to happen. <laughs> right? This is completely wrong. We have to stop right now. We do this. <laughs> you know, it was the worst moment probably because it, you know it followed. But when you think about it, it's it's fun that we're here today with a hundred plus people company." Uh, millions and we have people and we have not but we didn't even know how to just follow our cash at the beginning and yeah. and i think the lesson behind is just you need the good people you can trust at those roles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. beautiful okay dimitri this has been such a joy thank you so much for joining thank us you. it was a Black. pleasure no it's been it's been a good time and uh let's grab a coffee in the sunshine when all of this craziness is over yes. I'd be happy to. Beautiful. All right, let's do it. I appreciate you having on, buddy. Okay. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.